Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys. Welcome back to the Treatment Room Podcast. I'm your host, Tessa Zolli. Today, we are in for a conversation all about injectables, lasers, and medical aesthetics treatments. I have my very good friend Taylor with me today. Taylor is a Tufts trained physician's assistant, and we're going to get into all of your guys' questions about lip filler, lasers, etc., etc. So Taylor, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Tess. I'm so excited to be doing this. This has been probably a couple years in the making now, so it's really exciting to finally be able to do this with you. Um, Just for like a little bit of background, I've been a practicing PA for about four years now. So I've spent about the past three years in plastic surgery and aesthetics. So for those of you who are not familiar with the PA profession, a physician assistant, or I guess now our name title has actually changed to physician associate, uh, just to kind of incorporate a more like collaborative approach. So we are medically trained providers. We statistically do about 80 to 90% of what our supervising physicians can do. So we can prescribe, we can diagnose, we assess. We typically do about two to three years of graduate school training after our undergraduate training. So it is usually a master's, if not a doctorate level profession for some individuals. Um, But that's just like a little bit of background on the PA journey and essentially what a PA is. That's perfect. I feel like a lot of people aren't as familiar with the term and I'd never met a PA until I met you. And we actually met in San Francisco at Taylor's former place of work. I miss your lip flips and your your microneedling treatments so much. I still think about them to this day. Oh my gosh, that's so flattering. <laughs> It was always so nice, like having you come to the office and treating you. You're always just such like a ray of sunshine. (laughs) And I swear we're twins. So every time you came in, like our energy just feeds off of each other. But I love that you love my treatments as much as I love doing them because that's what it's all about. You know, it's you really have to have a patient who loves your work. You have to love what you do. And it's like a perfect symphony. Yes. And it's so funny because we're just good girlfriends now, but it's so funny to think that I just started as your patient. And that's the thing about Taylor. She really marries her bedside manner with like the utmost professionalism and skilled treatments. And I feel like that's really rare to find that in a provider, somebody you just feel so comfortable with and you enjoy sitting there even if it's an uncomfortable treatment, but at the same time, you really trust their hand and their eye. So I just hope you know that Taylor is a very precise and caring provider. And yeah, I I really honestly do miss your treatments a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about the main treatments that you like providing? Yeah, of course. So I would say the bread and butter of what I do is injectables. So my favorite treatments to do are obviously going to be your neurotoxins like Botox, Dysport. Also, I love doing fillers. So I'm pretty well known for doing lip filler, but I do a lot more than lip filler. So Lip filler is interesting. It's kind of like the entryway for a lot of patients to get into the aesthetic world. So once they're there, we can start kind of easing into doing some other things too for facial balancing. So full face filler for facial harmonization. You can incorporate some chin, some cheek, but basically anything filler related or neuromodulator like Botox, that's that's what I love to do. Taylor really, really specializes in lips. And I know it's what 
you love to treat because there's so much artistry to it. I want to talk more about lip filler. I know you guys listening have a ton of questions. I think like Taylor said, it's kind of like the gateway procedure. And yeah, there's just a lot of curiosity around lip treatments. So I want to get into that. But first, can you share with us a little bit more about how how you found this industry? What What led you here and where you are now? Absolutely. So when I started my PA journey, it's actually very interesting. I was actually on a medical school path for the longest time. And I actually didn't even know what a PA was until I was a senior in college. And I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't why doesn't anyone talk about this? This is amazing. So I kind of pivoted last minute and switched from pre-med to pre-PA. Um, and then when I actually started my PA journey, I had no idea what I wanted to go into. I was pretty open. I really loved the concept of surgery, but I... To be truthfully honest, I didn't have a ton of exposure to different specialties. And I think that's the beauty of becoming a PA. You have all of these options. You have lateral mobility where you can actually change from one specialty to another with, of course, some training involved. But that's the beauty of it. So when I had started my PA training, I was like, you know, maybe I'll go into general surgery. I love being in the OR. And it was one dermatology lecture that kind of changed everything for me. I was like, this is so interesting. It's so unique. It's so complex. There's actually a ton of medicine in dermatology. So I was like, you know, maybe I'll go into that. After I did a dermatology elective rotation during my clinical year, I went up to my advisor and I was like, I love dermatology. And he was like, well, if you love dermatology, you should really try plastic surgery. I was like, no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced I love derm. Like I'll just do medical dermatology. It'll be great. He's like, I really encourage you to like, you know, go outside your comfort zone, maybe do a plastics elective. So I did my plastic surgery elective and we were primarily in the clinic for that. So she was doing a ton of Botox and filler. And then we were in the operating room one to two days a week. And I was like, this is it. He was totally right. So. Whenever I have like a pre-PA or a current PA school PA student inquiring about like how to get into aesthetics, I always just encourage people keep an open mind because had I shut any of these specialties out by being so like narrow-minded and said, okay, you know, I'm going to do general surgery. I'm just going to do medical dermatology. I would have missed out on what I really love to do. So keep an open mind, but also pursue things that interest you. You don't have to be so open-minded that you're welcoming everything, but, you know, follow on that path and be, be open to opportunities along the way. And for somebody who's interested in being a PA potentially, what does the schooling path look like? So it's probably a little bit different now than when I was in school. But generally, when you're in your undergraduate education, they'll have you do some prerequisite courses. So typically, you'll do, you can be any major you want, as long as you complete your prerequisite in your core classes. So essentially, you're going to need to have anatomy and physiology background. Some will require statistics, organic and inorganic chemistry, typically physics, trying to think of what else I needed to have. Um, there are absolutely more that I'm just failing to remember, but those are the like the very kind of bare minimum and core prerequisites that you'll have to have. And then of course, you'll have to do some other things too. So um, there's actually, a, I believe there's now an exam specifically for pre-PAs or PA-tracked individuals. But when I was applying, I had to take the GRE and you also will need to have patient care hours, shadowing hours, volunteer hours, and then obviously doing research is always great. So if you can do some hands-on research in your undergraduate career, that's obviously going to be very beneficial too. But I think one of my biggest suggestions for pre-PAs is going to be 
to have as much hands-on clinical experience as you can. And if you can, try to work directly with a PA so that you can really get a feel for what they're doing. Because when I was applying, I had some idea of what a PA does and what a PA is. And I think in my mind, I, I believed it was so vastly different from the job role of an MD or a DO. And, and in many settings, it is. But it's just always good to get an idea of exactly what you would be doing, the amount of patient interaction you would be having, the amount of time you'll have with patients. So if you can kind of fast track all of that before you even enter the PA world, it's super helpful. What was the first the first like thing or person you ever injected? Oh my goodness. Uh <laughs> Let's see. I think it, it was definitely a person. I believe it was my sister. So when I yeah, when I first got hired, you obviously have to learn on someone. So my my lucky guinea pig was my sister. So she actually flew out from Connecticut. She was so excited. She was like, "I can't wait to do this. I've been wanting lip filler forever." So she hopped on a plane. We brought her to San Francisco. And we, we did her lip filler and her Botox that day. Oh, my gosh. And how did it turn out? She, she loved it so much so that she still gets her injectables, but unfortunately not with me anymore. <laughs> oh. Just due to geographic location. She's a little, she's somewhere a little bit different, but yeah. I've seen your injections with like blueberries or fruit, so that's why I ask. I wasn't sure if that's how you learn. When you're first learning to inject, like, is there somebody kind of guiding you? How do you know what technique is right? Or how do you, how do you like know what you're doing if you've never done it before? I was trained by Dr. Raja Gopal. So essentially, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the work going, I guess, kind of leading up to your first inject injection is going to be, you have to have a good fund of knowledge. So you have to know your anatomy. You have to have an idea of where you're injecting, an idea of what you're injecting. So having kind of like that background working knowledge, of course, shadowing and observing first. It wasn't like the first time I picked up a syringe. It was my first time seeing it. So I'd done a lot of research. I had had quite a bit of knowledge based on like my PA background and also like just working with Dr. Raja Gopal the first few weeks and months. So I would say the most helpful thing is going to be set yourself up for success, do the most that you can, and then find someone who is a really good mentor and is open to training and can give positive and negative feedback in a, in a very healthy way. So that's like the best way that we learn, right? We have to be told if we're, you know, a little too superficial, a little too deep. Because as you know, we're working with patients' faces. It's the first thing people see. So you want to make sure that you're doing it right. So luckily, when Dr. Rajagopal was training me, you know, she's a surgeon. So she can tell me you're at the correct depth, you're at the incorrect depth. That was too a little bit that was a little bit too hard on the plunger. Next time try to do X, Y, and Z. So there is a lot of hand holding, even though no one's holding your hand while doing the injections. But again, that comes with just finding the right trainer because I can't speak to everyone's experience, but I can only hope that they had a similar one. I think being open to feedback is so important for everyone, no matter what stage you're at in your journey and whether you're an esthetician or a PA, um, you talked about healthy feedback. And I know you've had a, a range of work experiences working for different practices. Like what's important to you in terms of working under a doctor? And what do you think healthy feedback looks like? Um, you know, maybe it's for an esthetician or a PA who is interviewing and looking at jobs. What do you think are kind of like good forms of feedback versus forms that, you know, you just feel like, 
are a little bit difficult to work under? I think it it can be hard to screen people, especially initially if you're in like a first round interview or you're just first meeting someone. But I do think that your first interactions with someone or at least with their practice will be very telling. So I think the most important thing when you're looking to develop or create a relationship with either a boss or a supervising doctor is going to be that you, one, have mutual respect for each other. Respect has to be a very core element. Um, And if you don't feel respected or you don't feel like someone is taking your time seriously or your presence seriously, that is telling enough. So having mutual respect, having open communication, the moment that communication breaks down or you don't feel comfortable asking a question, that's when something is going to go wrong. That's when mistakes are going to be made. So feeling like you can be open, communicative, ask questions, because these are aspects of medicine. Things are always changing. Things are always evolving. You have got to be a lifelong learner and you've got to be committed to it. So you have to feel comfortable knowing that Things are going to change. You're going to have to learn new things and you have to you have to inquire about how to do them. So I guess honesty, respect, open communication, I think those are all like major green flags to look for. And I think it a lot of it has to do with like our gut feeling too. If you feel like something's off, usually your your intuition's pretty right. Yes. Okay. I love that answer. And We do have quite a lot of follower questions. These are more from the perspective of somebody who's wanting to get a treatment versus a professional. But yeah, there was a lot of interest in in you and your expertise. So I'll just kind of fire these away at you. Um, Let's see. Okay. Starting with injectables. Is it true that injectables never fully dissolve away after you get them? That's a great question. So there are a few different ways that we can approach this question. In theory, if you're getting an HA or a hyaluronic acid product, that is a product that can and should be broken down over time by your body naturally. That's a substance that we all have within ourselves. So theoretically, it should be broken down. Now, if There are a few caveats to that question, or I guess to this answer. So if there is a significant amount of product in an area, or if you have injected that product into the wrong plane, then you can deal with some complications like migration, or your filler can just stick around for a really, really long time. And we've had studies and seen cases where patients have had lip filler and eye filler and these are two of the most problematic areas for some people and for some injectors and it can last for 10 plus years so sometimes when that happens it's good to just start fresh and luckily with those products there's something called hyaluronidase and that's an enzyme that breaks down hyaluronic acid products and no it doesn't deplete you of your own ha but just the synthetic products that we're injecting, like your Juvederm, your Restylane, Belotero. Um, so that's the bright side of using an HA product is that you can dissolve it, especially if it becomes problematic. Other products like Belafil and Radius, those are going to be more semi-permanent products. So with those products, they are creating initial volume And then they're stimulating your body's own collagen over time. So with those products, unfortunately, those cannot be dissolved or dissolved as easily as an HA product. And the intent is for those to stick around longer. And FDA approval is an interesting thing because for some of these products, the FDA approval may be, you know, it's approved and stays for two to three years or five years. But everyone's metabolism is different. Again, injection plane is really important. So if you're injecting products into the incorrect plane, they can last you much longer than they're intended to be there for. You mentioned lip filler can be really problematic. And I think as somebody who's just started to get lip filler, 
<laughs> I now I now understand that more. And you also mentioned it's one of the more popular treatments. It's where a lot of people start. What do you think are the main complications we see with lip filler and why does that happen? It's a great question. So <laughs> I would say the most common problem that you'll see with lip filler is that you're going to have either migration or they're just going to be overfilled. And this comes down to a couple of things. One, I always urge people to choose their injector wisely. Going for a Groupon, Groupons are great, but it doesn't always, it's not always a great sign of a great injector. And I strongly urge people to steer away from the idea of cost effectiveness. So of course you can be, you know, a little like a little bit aware of the pricing, but don't be so aware that you're like, okay, I'm going to go with a half syringe for $300. Are you going to get the best treatment? Probably not to be completely transparent. So do your research on your injector. You remember at the end of the day, you're paying for their expertise and their skill. So everyone prices products differently. Everyone prices treatments differently. So it's really hard to compare apples to oranges and pricing from one practice to another. So keep that in mind when you are looking for an injector. Pricing will be variable and there are reasons why it is. So the best things that you can do for yourself are choosing the right person who's experienced, is safe with it and using the correct products. Product choice and product placement are also going to be really important. So no two lips are the same. Everyone's lips are different, but there are definitely some characteristics and some elements that we keep in mind as injectors. And it really depends on how much tissue laxity, like loose skin there is in the lips. If there's already pre-existing product in there from another practice or from a, a previous treatment if there's already some migration. So the best thing that you could do if you start to notice migration is probably to dissolve it and start fresh because once you have that open gateway or that open channel, new filler that you place is probably going to follow the path of least resistance. So it will probably end up going that path as well. So it may seem very appealing to just continue to add to your filler but from a longevity and an aesthetic standpoint it probably makes more sense to dissolve it and start fresh even though your lips may end up being a little bit smaller in the long run in addition your your in addition to like your technique and your product choice it's also just important to be mindful of the intervals at which you're treating so everyone's path will be a little bit different, but generally we'll recommend if you want to build your lips, you have to wait a couple months between sessions. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind, but also a really difficult thing because for patients or for people that have had things like tattoos and piercings, these can become like really addicting procedures for people. So... <laughs> So people don't want to wait three to six months to get their next session of filler, but also there's only so much space within the lip borders. So if you're jam packing filler in there session to session, migration and overfilling is going to become inevitable. So they're going to become shapeless. They're probably going to have a little bit of migration above the vermilion border. And that's when you tend to get like that ducky look. What would you say is a healthy cadence for somebody who loves the treatment, wants to get it, but doesn't want to run into these these issues of migration, overfilling? Is there a way to do it healthily for the long term? That is a difficult thing to answer just because everyone's metabolism is different. And a lot of it comes down to not only just your baseline metabolism, but how active you are and how much you're using your muscle groups too. So in San Francisco, I genuinely had one patient that would come back every three months and we do a half syringe of filler and it was basically starting from scratch. So prior to seeing that patient, I probably never would have said every three months, but for her, 
every three months made sense. For most people, I would say once you have your desired result, you're probably not going to need to come in for lip filler or like full facial filler more than once a year, maybe twice maximum. But for the average person, your filler should be lasting you quite a few months. It should be lasting you a while. And if for some reason you are breaking down product really quickly, it may be worth asking if there's an alternative that you can switch to um, or even just inquiring about dilution too. Just because some practices do dilute their products a little bit, it might be an, like a very honest question to ask and from a place of concern as like a paying patient too. Just making sure that what you're getting is what you're getting. Because again, genuinely, most people will not need to do a filler treatment more than once or twice a year. That's really interesting. That's something I wouldn't have even thought about. So you're saying some practices are diluting the filler, so it's not as you're not getting as much bang for your buck necessarily. Does that come from a place of honestly like cheapness or is it another reason? It can stem from a couple different reasons. So there are some areas where it's not advised to dilute the product or to blend the product, but a lot of, especially doctors, they have experience. They'll use things like Kenalog a little bit just to help reduce like initial inflammation. And that can actually be really helpful, but it's more so when you are diluting with saline and there are some spas and practices that I'm sure do this where they're diluting with um, with saline. And these products are compounded the way that they are, and they're meant to hold their structural, structural integrity. So these go through rigorous testing, they go through trials, and the way that they're made, we know their safety profile, we know their... I guess their properties. So when you start to alter that a little bit, it may not last you as long. And I'm sure that some of this does come from a safety perspective for some areas, like very high risk areas like the eyes, the nose. It may be beneficial for some practices to blend or dilute product a little bit. For the most part, we shouldn't really be blending or diluting product. And that truly may come from more of a cost perspective for some places. And I know that that's been a really huge issue with Botox is that when we see Botox dipping down into the really low pricing, remember, Botox also costs a practice money. So if you're seeing Botox sold very at a very low price point, it may genuinely be Botox and it may just be that that's the way of them attracting you initially. And then there's like, okay. So we can discount our Botox, but then we'll get you to do some fillers, some microneedling, et cetera. Or it could just be that they're watering it down. So I would tread very lightly. Make sure that you're comfortable with who you're going to and that they're reputable and that they're trained. Those are That's the due diligence that you owe yourself as a patient. Um, beyond that, there's not a whole lot that you can do other than ask questions, but those are the main things that I would do when you're, when you're searching for a practice. Okay. That's really interesting. I think something else I'd like to know more about just as somebody who wants to be educated in, in making these decisions, I very much trust my provider and I think that's so important, but what would you say are kind of the differences in the different lip filler products? Because maybe the provider thinks they know the look I want, but maybe I actually want something different. Are there kind of subtle differences between different types of filler in terms of, you know, maybe one is more so providing a smoothing effect versus something else is more for volume or structure? No, you're absolutely right. So there are a few products on the market that are designed specifically for the lips. And I'm sure you're familiar with Wrestling Kiss. Mm -hmm. That was designed specifically for the lips. The other products weren't necessarily intended solely for the lips, but they do work well in the lips. 
So all of them do have very different, we, we call them rheology, and they have different kind of like makeups. So I guess essential things that you're going to want to look for in, and this, this is kind of more for like providers or for people that are really interested in like the science behind it. But basically, when we're looking at the lips, we can tolerate a product that can pull a little bit more water. So there are going to be some subtle differences between the filler profiles. So between products in the Juvederm line, they're going to have different degrees of what we call hydrophilicity. So the amount of water that they pull. They're also going to have some structural differences in things like G prime and cohesivity. And these are these are elements that are going to contribute to the actual structure of the product. So this basically means how firm the product is. When we're looking at the lips, they're an, air, they're an area that animates. So we want to choose something that's less firm and less like a pillory structure, if that makes sense. So what you put in your cheeks isn't probably going to be what you put in your lips. And another thing to keep in mind is also how much the product sticks to itself. So those are all things that should be kind of going through your injector's mind when they're looking at your lips and when they're choosing like a general lip product. In terms of products that you can choose from for the lips, there are definitely some different products depending on your goals, your anatomy, and your structure. So just from like a very kind of like basic standpoint, products like Restylane and Refine those are going to be really good products for like lip lines. So someone who has a lot of redundant tissue or a lot of lip lines, lip laxity, that's going to be a good product. It's not going to give you those like huge, like plump lips, but it's going to be good for smoothing. Uh, products like Juvederm Ultra, Juvederm Ultra Plus, those products are a little bit more robust. So those products, not everyone can have. And it's a great product, but it also, just like any other filler, like it's very patient dependent. So you just have to be careful of who you're injecting that product into. Like I would say the best candidates for like a Juvederm Ultra kind of look are those that want that nice plump look because it is going to pull water and it is going to give you more of like that pillowy look. I would say if you're looking for something with more structure, Wrestling Kiss is a great product. Wrestling Define is also a really good product, um, but if you're looking for something really, really natural, really just to, like soften, smooth, you're probably looking at something like a Refine or a Juvederm Volbella. So again, they do have different properties and different kind of looks to them. And I think when you're consulting for like for your first lip filler or even a follow up lip filler appointment, like be open and honest in what your goals are, because if we're not on the same page about what your goals are we may not choose the right product for you but also we need to set the expectation correctly so if you want those nice big plump lips but you have really small lips at baseline it may not be the best in your best interest to get a product with a lot of structure and that's a quote heavier product because then you may migrate so it's it's definitely a conversation to have Okay, this is a little bit of a wild card question, but is there a celebrity or a known face that, you know, you could tell has has aesthetic work done on it, but that you think looks really tasteful? Like somebody you think is a really good example of how aesthetic work can look supernatural and just enhance what somebody already has? Oh, that's a great question. You know, every once in a while, I'll scroll through TikTok. I'm actually like <laughs> running through my brain right now to think of who I've recently seen on TikTok. I think Hillary Duff looks great. She does. Mm -hmm. I, okay, Hillary Duff, obviously I can't say what she's had done or if she's had anything done, but she looks fantastic. The fact that she's aging very tastefully and very gracefully and preserving her natural features and look she looks fantastic. That's that's the look we should be striving for, where people can still animate, they can emote, but they look refreshed. They don't look tired. They still look like themselves. I think those are all really like beautiful things to look at when you're looking at someone pursuing aesthetics. I think fillers and lasers and Botox, they get such a bad rep sometimes because 
we have a tendency to overfill. And with someone like that, with like Hilary Duff, she looks she looks perfect. I think the most common ones that I get are usually Hailey Bieber. I mean, they look gorgeous. They're gorgeous lips. But she does have a little bit of migration. If you compare her lips before, you can obviously tell they're a little bit different. Her upper lip especially is a little bit bigger than it was at baseline. And if we think about the trends of getting older, we start mm-hmm. to lose our HA 20s and 30s. So these are areas that should be getting smaller, not larger over time. So there's nothing wrong with getting your lips done. Obviously, I'm a, a big proponent of it, but she's they're definitely augmented to some degree. So I think in cases like that, and I know with the whole J-Lo on olive oil situation, it's, it is so hard when celebrities create these product lines to promote like healthy plump lips or wrinkle-free skin. And of course, I'm sure these are great products. I don't personally have experience with any or many of them, but it's also good to keep in mind that these are also people that have access to a lot, whether it's financially or just based on connections. And also, this is an industry that is very much focused on preserving youth and staying young. And there are definitely other things that they're doing in conjunction in conjunction with the skincare and products that they're creating and selling. So take it with a grain of salt. Not all of JLo's wrinkles are eradicated because of her olive oil <laughs> topical skincare, but um it it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, right. And and Haley's lips aren't that way because of a peptide treatment. Hot take. No. I'm just curious because I think the migration is a little bit obvious on Haley. I don't think it looks bad and I almost feel like she's almost setting a trend of of maybe it's intentional migration because I just can't imagine why it wouldn't be why she wouldn't dissolve it if she didn't want it to look that way. Do you see people almost liking the the migration at all or like asking for that? It's so interesting because when I look at her lips as well, I agree with you. Her migration doesn't look per se bad. It's there. It's pretty obvious that it's there. But I think the issue that comes with that is if they dissolve, they may not be able to achieve as much height. And for a lot of people, they really desire to have that top lip be taller and more structured. So it really just depends on preference. Of course, like as a provider, you're always going to recommend if someone has migration, you dissolve it. But also some people are okay with it. If you're okay with a little bit of migration because it gives you height and you're not interested in continuously adding to it, that's probably okay. Mm -hmm. It's not hurting you. It's not putting you at risk of any complications down the road other than additional migration. It It doesn't affect you from like a safety standpoint, but it's just something to keep in mind. Like if you do eventually want to add to your lips, it may be good to to dissolve a bit of it, if not all of it. Okay. We have one more injectable question and then we'll move on to uh, some, some other treatments with the time we have left. Taylor, somebody asked, why is Zeoman being so hyped right now? More, even more than, than Disport. Thank you. Oh, so yeah, so it's interesting. So I think a lot of it has to do with the areas that we're in. So all the neurotoxins, they're all botulinum toxin. So they're, they all have pretty much the same like core element. And then they differ based on the presence of different things like accessory proteins. So for Xeomin, and I personally don't have a lot of experience with Xeomin. I have more experience with Botox and Dysport, but they market it as the, quote, clean neurotoxin. It's still botulinum toxin, but I think for some people who are very influenced by things being, quote, clean or, quote, natural, it's a more attractive choice because this product doesn't have that accessory protein. 
So it's just essentially it's metabolized a little bit differently. From like a provider standpoint, is Xeomin safer? No, but it's still a great product. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of it's just marketing and it's just your your classic marketing. Um, it's a great product. And honestly, a lot of people do like it. And I will say when I was at a conference this weekend, one of the uh, key speakers actually mentioned that Xeomin is a really good neurotoxin to start with because your risk of developing tolerance with it over time may actually be lower. And that may be because of that accessory protein. Um, so, I mean, it's it's something that I'm sure we're going to keep learning about and doing studies on, whether it's anecdotal or like actual clinical trials. But from like a, a safety standpoint or like a quote clean standpoint, it's not a whole lot different from the other neurotoxins, but from a longevity and quote tachyphylaxis standpoint where we build resistance to things, it could be interesting because it could be something that is on the rise. I've always gotten Xeomin. I'm autoimmune and my provider has just always wanted me to go with that. And I've always been curious about other injectables, but yeah, kind of said it would be the safest for me, but it seems like it's a little bit debatable. So in that in that sense, yes, because actually, and that's part of the reason if we go back to what I just said about tachyphylaxis, so patients with autoimmune, and I'm glad that you brought that up, so thank you, patients with autoimmune disorders, they do tend to develop antibodies to things a little bit more quickly. So for someone who has a history of autoimmune disease, whether it's like thyroid, Hashimoto's, um, insulin resistance, things like that, like you may benefit from having Xeomin because your body may not quote attack it as easily, if at all, compared to something like Botox or Dysport. So in that population, it could be more beneficial and probably is more beneficial to use. Okay. And I have to ask, have you worked with Daxify yet? You know, I haven't. So, Are you excited about it? So... I don't know how I feel about it. And I think part of it's because I haven't received like formal training on it and I haven't actually worked with it. There are a few interesting things when it comes to Daxify. So based on their studies, they're predicting that most people will get at least six months of effect with their neuromodulator, the Daxify. But it's interesting because if we also look at like Botox and Dysport studies, there are quite a few patients and a pretty decent percentage of patients that have that effect lasting about six months with those products as well. So it really just comes down to, again, like, I guess we just have to do a little bit more research, do a little bit more actual like clinical practice with these products. Um, and also proper dose is so important. So making sure that we're also dosing Botox and Dysport correctly as well. But I think Daxify is a really interesting product because if it truly is lasting like six to nine months for patients and it sets in faster, it's a really it's a really nice thing. But it probably also comes at a different price point for a lot of practices with that knowledge. So keep in mind when something lasts you longer, it can either be a really good thing or a really bad thing. So if it truly is lasting six to nine months, be aware that if you also are one of the unfortunate patients that has a complication like eyelid or brow ptosis, which can happen, um, it can happen due to like injection technique, it can happen due to unintentional spread, it can happen just due to having anatomical variations in 2D and 3D space. There are a lot of different reasons that that can happen, but keep in mind, if you do have one of those unfortunate consequences, you may have it a little bit longer. Mm, okay. That's a really good point. Moving on, lots of questions about Morpheus, Morpheus aid. Um, what would you say are the benefits? Is it painful? What's the pricing like? So I unfortunately have never had Morpheus done, but I have perform that procedure on patients. So based on my personal experience, it is rather uncomfortable. I would say 
for it's kind of 50 50 in terms of who I would perform nerve blocks for and whom I wouldn't. So a lot of that comes down to patient preference and also time. So if someone's on a bit of a time crunch, um, they may not elect to undergo nerve blocks. So from a comfort standpoint, they're always helpful. They will create a lot more swelling and downtime in the long run because you're injecting a lot of fluid when you do a nerve block. But they are definitely an option. And for some patients, they're really, really beneficial on getting them through the treatment. So with Morpheus, and that also goes for like Fractura, Pixel, Infini, any of the microneedling with radiofrequency treatments, for those who are not super familiar with them, they are using a tip. It's a, it's a clean tip each time. It's a sterile tip. Each person gets their own. So it's never reused. It's never autoclaved or anything like that. It's, it's a fresh tip from the manufacturer. So they're sterile needles with heat. So think about like poking injury and then heat in addition. It's, it's quite uncomfortable for a lot of people, but also the level of discomfort also varies with the device that's being used. So typically um, they should all be pretty comparable, but some are a little bit more uncomfortable than others. So my advice would be if you can, you can tolerate topical numbing absolutely receive the topical numbing if you need the nerve block make sure that the practice you're going to can offer them especially if you're someone who's a little bit more sensitive so just make sure that your provider is familiar with doing them too just in case you do need it for that comfort aspect do you think there are certain people who shouldn't get it like maybe people like us with rosacea would we be a candidate for it so a a lot of it comes down to what you do in your pre and post care. And I'm sure you're very familiar with this too. So obviously acne prone patients, you want to be really careful because anytime that you're manipulating the skin, you are risking infection. So if someone has active acne, it's definitely not a procedure you're going to want to do at that time. Yeah. So making sure acne is under control um, for rosacea and hyperpigmentation patients, just making sure that they're on good skincare regimens, just to make sure that you're not like aggravating or exacerbating anything too, because whenever you have heat, you can always exacerbate a flare or initiate a flare. Yeah. So taking care of your skin before and after and being on medical grade skincare, SPF, sun avoidance, all of those are really important things like leading up and especially in the post care too. So it really isn't like a one size fits all. It's really worth having a conversation with the provider to see if you are a candidate. And based on like your skin type, your skin concerns, if if that's the best treatment for you and how to go about pre and post treatment. And I, we have just totally milked Taylor because she's, <laughs> she's so good. We could honestly chat all day. I want to just ask... One more question that I think is is really important. I know we talked a little bit about this viral TikTok that that was going around from somebody who'd gone to a practice. I won't say the name, but somebody had gone to a practice for a treatment. It was lip filler and had a pretty unfavorable outcome didn't like their results they'd gone in and and you know tried to talk to the practice about it and I think a lot of us have been in this position where we've gone in for a treatment and you know maybe it's been a outcome we just didn't like or something went wrong and I think as a patient it can be really uncomfortable and difficult to say something sometimes. And there's definitely situations where people are taking advantage of this or they're just kind of complaining about every little thing. I'm more so talking about what do you do when something like really has not gone right or you're not happy with it? And, you know, bearing in mind, a lot of these treatments are pretty expensive. What's the right way to go about you know, talking to your provider about an outcome you didn't like, a way that's productive, it's not undermining your expertise, but at the same time, it's like advocating for yourself and speaking up in in a kind way. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a really important topic. And 
I have experience on both sides. So I would say it's always best to approach things one with kindness, two respect, and three calmly. So I'm sure you've heard a lot in your life that being kind gets you a lot further than being nasty. So if you have a concern about something, it's always good to go into things calmly, um, being more non-accusational. There are a lot of providers that are very dismissive. And I think if you genuinely are coming from a place of concern with the ability to be understanding, it goes a long way. So a lot of this has to do with your initial choice in an injector as well. So are you going to someone who can truly handle feedback? Or are you going to someone who, if you see them and you have a problem, they're going to discharge you? If that's your gut feeling, run. Because you want to be with someone for the long run. You don't want to have to be provider hopping. You don't want to have to find a provider to take care of the mistake that another made. They, this should be like your safe haven. They should be able to manage you in all aspects, whether that's a safety profile aspect or a complication like migration or just cosmetic dissatisfaction. So making sure that you're able to verbalize and vocalize your concerns while also being respectful of them because this is a relationship. Like, just like you have with your clients, like, it's really hard to maintain any kind of relationship going forward once, like, trust or respect is right. is completely shattered. So I think the best advice, and, like, anytime I've had an issue with patients being concerned, whether it's, like, oh, my gosh, I think this side is still swollen. Um, I think I may have a lump or a bump. If it's anything mm-hmm. like that, we're human beings. Like, we have to admit that, like, we're not perfect as much as we try to be. Yeah. And taking ownership for what you do is important. Being open to remedying it is important. And also just, like, helping a patient navigate. These are scary things. So... And it's also their face. So for a lot of people, they don't know what to truly expect the first time they get a procedure done. So you have to make sure you're going to someone who can guide you through that process and help you along the way if you're having issues or concerns. So firstly, choose your injector provider wisely to enter things calmly mm-hmm. and respectfully. And I think those are that's pretty much all you can do. And uh, Again, just don't be accusational to be like, well, you did X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like, right, right. Like, that doesn't help anyone. And I think it just puts a bad taste in everyone's mouths, as, as upset as some people can be. Yeah. Um, there is only so much you can do. And of course, like, you do the best that you can and hope that it's received well on their behalf. But again, a lot of it has to probably do with your initial choice. And that may be a good thing to ask someone up front. If you're there for a consultation, be like, typically, what is your follow-up policy? Or if I do have an issue, is this something that we can work on or can dissolve? Or, you know, just being up front. Like, how do you manage problems? Because that's going to be super telling of how someone's going to help manage yours. Yes. I think this is what separates good from great providers. And I'll be the first to say, I think even really incredible estheticians or doctors, dermatologists, PAs, things can go wrong even at the best level. Things happen. Everyone's human. Complications come up. Um, I think also from the provider standpoint, I think it's important always to acknowledge the problem, I feel like where where things go wrong is one, the expectation wasn't set and, you know, the patient doesn't know what to do should something go wrong. When you don't yeah. set the expectation, somebody is not going to come to you calm, cool, and collected. They're going to be surprised, frazzled. You know, it's it can be really jarring when it's when it's your face. 
I think just on the provider's end, whether we're talking about somebody who's, you know, disappointed in an outcome with acne or lip filler, just acknowledging what they're saying, I think goes a long way. And then you can kind of diffuse the the tension and the, you know, accusatory nature of the conversation and just acknowledge like something's not right here, even if you're just not happy with it. And then together work towards a solution that makes sense for everyone. I think the worst thing you can do is, you know, possibly gaslight or say something like, I don't see it. Like, you know, looks great to me. Or, um, you know, like, what are you talking about? You, you're healing totally normal when it's really not. Um, I think that is is for me as a, a a patient. That's where I lose the trust, and it could have been yeah. years of a great relationship and happy outcomes. And in that one instance, in that one moment where something's gone wrong and it's not acknowledged, that's for me where it's hard to get that trust back. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be necessarily like an admittance of fault. No, but just acknowledging like, you know, I do appreciate that you have a small bump. I do appreciate that there is some migration. Um, I will say one of one of the most difficult things as a from a provider standpoint is when you get like a text or a message from a patient that's unhappy like day 1 and they're like I have so much swelling. Well, we we are humans, we swell. So my only advice on that aspect would be give it like two to three weeks before you say anything because what you're seeing could very well be swelling. And with swelling comes asymmetry. So no matter who your provider is, they're probably gonna recommend waiting like a good two, three weeks. But if at your two to three week mark, you have concerns, that is totally fair game. Like that is an appropriate time where we can bring you back and we can work on things. If it's a little dissolving, if it's adding a little bit more product somewhere, I will say like probably within that two week time frame, hardly anyone's going to want to do anything to remedy a situation because most likely it is swelling or like your results haven't fully kicked in, especially if it's like Botox, Dysport, Xeomin. But also it is, it is also really hard because again, for patients, they're coming from a place of concern. It's their face. For a lot of them, it's their first time. They don't know what to expect. So I think you're totally right. Like setting the expectation on a provider's behalf is really important. Like that's nothing that a patient should take onus over. Yeah. I think what I've just come to find is like, you can never repeat yourself enough when it comes to setting an expectation. I know for, you know, a lot of us treating acne, that might mean really clearly saying like things may get worse before they get clear. This is going to be a long-term relationship. This is a long-term process. And same thing for you with building lip filler. You're not going to just, you know, you can't provide the end result in the first appointment. It's going to take time. It's going to be a slow build. It's not always just a linear shot. And I think we can really limit limit the problems and dissatisfaction that comes our way just by over-communicating and just really reminding our clients and patients on multiple fronts, in multiple ways, in, an, in a verbal conversation, in a follow-up email. This is this is what to expect when people have the understanding like a purge might happen. There's so much more understanding of the overall process versus, you know, you avoid saying something because you just don't even want to put that thought in their head. Um, you want to deal with it later. I just find that's when we run into more problems. I would rather under promise and over deliver and just really be clear about what they might expect versus um, not say anything because it just, I've found it always comes back to bite you in the end. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And for the listeners out there, I'm just curious if any of you listen and have feedback, what is your preferred method of like Mm. information and knowledge? Do you Mm -hmm. retain most of the information that a provider is giving you at the time of a consultation? Do you prefer a video? Do you prefer an Instagram Mm -hmm. post? Like what is the best way to set that expectation? Because 
I think the statistic is when we're in a consultation, we only maintain about or retain about 10% of what we're told. Mm. So I'm just curious, like what the most effective form of communication for getting that across is, because obviously we want you guys to be happy and we want to make sure that we're setting it correctly for you guys too. Yeah. Yeah. I think honestly, this is something I want to do more of is, is asking patients or clients what their preferred method of communication is because for somebody it might be text for somebody else it might be a call might be an email might be they want to go over it in person i think everyone is different but it's it's such a good point and the communication really is everything yeah it really is and again you can't have a good relationship with your clients or your patients without it so mm-hmm. Yes. Again, like my, I think the most important thing I'll ever stress to people that are inquiring about aesthetics or interested in aesthetics is do your research because you want to find your person who you're going to be with for a long time. It's, it's Mm -hmm. a relationship. It's a journey. Yes. Yeah. And I honestly think even in those moments where something has gone wrong, I actually think those can be the moments that really bond a provider and a client, there's always a way to work through things and work to a solution. And, you know, sometimes it might be an opportunity to uh, to backtrack or to try something new or to correct what's been done, but it doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. So I know what you're saying, Taylor, about that feeling when you get like a text, somebody's disappointed. Honestly, it's heartbreaking for us providers because we go into this job wanting to make everyone feel their most beautiful and feel happy. And I think an automatic reaction to that feeling can be like defensive or like, oh no, I did something bad. Like they're not going to trust me anymore or like just this is ruined, but it doesn't always have to be the case. No, you're totally right. I mean, and again, we are human beings, especially in an area that we're driving with our skill set, our hands. We're not robots. So I, I can definitely see how people get defensive and can get a little bit offended, but also like keep yourself in check. <laughs> we're humans. Give ourselves some grace. Everyone gets grace. But you're right. Those are really transformative moments. And I think that's a really positive way of looking at it. And I think that's a really unique way of looking at it too, because you're totally right. Like sometimes I've actually had a few quote relatively difficult patients in the past and I ended up actually remedying my relationship with them and having a really strong relationship with them because we were able to work through areas of concern concerning situations, you know? So I think you're right. I think a lot of it has to do with like mindset perspective and openness too. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, people want to feel seen. I think if they've chosen a provider, they've probably already decided they like and trust you. So in those moments as a provider, I would just encourage you to know like somebody's already put their trust in you. And for me as the patient, if something goes wrong, my automatic desire is not to jump ship. I actually, like, if I've invested in you, if I've chosen you, I already know you are, like, capable of remedying the situation. I just want to be seen in that moment, and I I probably do want it corrected. Or, you know, same thing for hairstylists. You don't like the outcome of your hair. So maybe that can give somebody some confidence. Like, these things do happen. It doesn't mean somebody's ready to abandon you. It's an opportunity show that you acknowledge and and see the issue and that you're able to you're open to feedback and you're able to work on it together I also love hearing your perspective on this too because you're so right I think it's funny because I've heard this so many times in the past week about different scenarios it's really about feeling heard and feeling seen so it's just like a little tidbit I'll keep in the back of my mind too because you're totally right we're humans that's like That's part of it. 
I'll just share one last example and one example of me being a human with faults. Last week, this has actually never happened, but I sent the wrong product. I sent them the wrong moisturizer. I sent them a very similar moisturizer, but it wasn't the one we decided on together. The client opened the box. She was really disappointed to find like it wasn't what we had decided on together. And she came to me very disappointed. And just in those moments, you have to like humble yourself and acknowledge like I made a mistake. I'm so I'm so sorry. From there, I was able to explain what the difference is and the differences were between the products. And she just said, you know what? I'm just so thankful you acknowledged that. And I could tell that's just what she wanted. Like she just wanted to feel seen and she probably felt like it was a bit of a careless mistake and she just wanted to feel like, you know, seen and heard and that I was able to say like I acknowledge what went wrong here. Let's let's make it right. Big or small as it may be to that person, it may feel very big. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point a fair point to make but that's also why I love you so much as a human like this is just it's just so you and I think that's why we get along so well is because we're so similar in so many ways so I love that you approached it in that way (laughs) it's just it's a very test way of approaching it but that's why we love you oh I love you too Taylor and I are (laughs) truly kindred spirits it was so by chance that we met but we met and we found out we have the same birthday we look quite similar and we just (laughs) immediately connected so I love you too and thank you so much for for coming on and sharing so much of your education and expertise with us I know everyone's gonna eat this up and they're gonna have so many more follow-up questions for you and they'll probably want you back but would you mind sharing with us your social media, just shout yourself out. And um, also, if there's a place people can go to see you, where would that be? So my my Instagram is probably the easiest way to reach me. My handle is at Taylor S underscore PAC. I'm also on TikTok as well. Um, and then I'm actually starting at a new practice this week, which I'm really, really excited to announce. So I'm going to be working with Dr. Ben Talai, and he's in Beverly Hills. So this decision was a really hard one for me to make because I did not have the greatest experience at my last practice. So I really entered this new one very cautiously. I went through many, many interviews (laughs) to end up where I am. So I'm really excited about this opportunity. I'm really excited to be working with him. So in the next couple of weeks, you guys should be able to book with me there if you're interested. And people can come to you for, I assume, injectables, anything else? Injectables, lasers, microneedling, and then we do have surgical cases there too. Oh, perfect. Thank you <laughs> so, so much, Taylor. I'm so excited to send any LA clients your way. Yeah. And if you guys have questions, you can also DM me directly. I'd also love to do a follow-up podcast if we get enough questions. But have so many questions I didn't get to. <laughs> That's okay. We can always do another one. This is fun. <laughs> Yay! I'm so glad you enjoyed it. We do have a lot more questions about lasers, body sculpting. So we'll put this first one out and then we can even gather some more and do a part two so welcome. Thank you for coming on, Taylor, and thank you everyone for listening. I'm going to put Taylor's social handles in the show notes so you can easily find her. Go check out her Instagram and TikTok. I will talk to you next week.